I was talking to a service provider yesterday and I started looking at his profile, giving him advice. I'm like, yo, my guy, you're a handyman, a tiler, a pool specialist, and a solar specialist. That's Shio Folouio, the co-founder and CEO of home services platform Candua and The Flips B-Mike. I'm like, this guy's all over the place. But he's just like, well, I can kind of do enough of stuff and I know how to find the right people to be able to do a job. I'm like, well, just in terms of this platform, focus on one because that's how you're going to build up your portfolio to be able to win customers on our platform. And he said, ah, I'm not sure. I'm thinking I'm going to maybe, I'll come back later, like back to this job later. And I said, so what are you going to do instead? He said, I've been doing a property course and I'm now going to be looking at doing real estate. I'm like, well, okay, fair enough. And he said, yeah, well, but, but I'll be back. And you know, that kind of mentality of just like getting in where you fit in, finding the flows. Maybe his friend is doing well, doing this property thing. Let me follow that for a bit. When pool specialist comes back in summer, when people want to get their pools ready and he's seeing an influx, he'll come back to pools. That's the nature of a lot of work in our environment. Throughout this season, we've been exploring the future of work. And one thing that's become clear is that the future of work in the African context is going to be a lot of different things. It kind of mimics the nature of work itself for many individuals on the continent. They're taking this portfolio approach to work. And even in more quote-unquote developed markets, we're seeing work become less formal and more flexible, this unbundling of work from employment. And this evolution of work itself provides a whole set of new challenges and opportunities. So this episode is effectively a retrospective on the entire season, in which we explore more of these questions about the future of work in this context. And joining Shio and me for this conversation is friend of the flip, Chris McClay, a veteran of the youth employment space on the continent and a deep subject matter expert who is currently the program director for the JobTech Alliance at Mercy Corps. Before we start, we'd like to thank MFS Africa for their sponsorship of season four of The Flip. Throughout this season, we've spoken with MFS Africa about their multitude and variety of products and services, from agent banking to virtual cards to newfound explorations into blockchain-based payments, but it's their core platform, the MFS Africa Payments Hub, servicing enterprise customers and enabling them to make and collect payments across the continent that has always been the company's bread and butter. So for today's episode, I spoke to Cynthia Panera from MFS Africa's Enterprise Business Solutions team about their enterprise focus. What we do at Enterprise Business Solutions is partner with different partners arranging from the likes of fintechs to the likes of agriculture, like the lending business and so forth. And the idea behind that is for us to be able to facilitate payments. So our definition of payments from our partner's perspective is that us being able to handle their pay-in, which is like the collections and payouts, which in our world is called disbursements. A perfect example would be a partner who's doing lending. So they will basically disburse the amounts. Where MFS Africa comes in is we connect either through our API or through our portal and enable that disbursement to go out to the respective customer. And the reverse is also true. So we also see it in the back end for a customer who wants to do collections. So again, if a partner was doing like lending business at some point, they'll have to collect the recurring the fees. And we are able to provide the partner with a merchant initiated collection where they can actually initiate that collection. So Ideally, like we are giving our partners more control over their business, um, more control in terms of the different use cases and more control in terms of the funds which have come in versus the funds which have actually gone out. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. 
Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. Today's conversation with Shio Fulawio and Chris McClay starts with the idea that most people on the continent aren't employed or unemployed, but instead have this mixed livelihood or portfolio of work. Here's Chris. So I've been in the youth employment space my whole career. And when I got into the space, I remember NGOs talking about their impact where they were like, this young person was unemployed. Now they have a chicken and they are therefore employed. Now, even at the time, that wasn't true, right? The person was neither unemployed beforehand and they were not employed once they got the chicken. For a long time, we've had this like narrative of trying to present things as like binary employed or unemployed. But realistically, everyone in Africa has this mixed livelihood or portfolio of work where they're tying together self-employment, wage employment, agriculture, like working for the family. And I think one of the changes has just been a change in narrative that I think we're able to have a more nuanced conversation than we used to. To give you like one example, when I used to live in Liberia, within a couple of years, the World Bank did a economic study of the country and then the International Labour Organization did one a couple of years later. And the World Bank said there was 85% unemployment in the country. And two years later, the International Labour Organization said, I think there was 7% unemployment in the country. Now, obviously, one of them isn't like drastically wrong. They just have different definitions of employment. And I think we just move into like a more sophisticated narrative nowadays that understands that people are not binarily employed versus unemployed. They're like piecing together different pieces of income. And the challenge ahead is not about taking people from unemployment to employment, but making that work more higher income, more secure, or meaningful with greater opportunities for growth. Shio, I was just thinking in this context, how you say that many of your service providers on Candua would rather have a wage. So is that really actually just what we're talking about is in the context of better jobs and in the context of employment that really what they just want is stable earnings. Yeah, I don't think that's deep, don't we all? Yes, I do. But I think it's not just about stability, it's about stability and quantity. Because, you know, all the studies that people do outside of South Africa with young people say that young people don't want a stable job, they want independence and all of this. But I think it's really just that they see more opportunity to earn higher income in self-employment than employment. I think it's like everyone wants this combination. They want high incomes that is regular and secure and resilient. And they want that work to be meaningful. Maybe the word is consistent rather than stable, or rather the the question Justin's asking and the point he's making is kind of like the importance of the money being regular. So whether if you can do that, from a self-employed versus salaried perspective, I think you'd probably choose self-employed versus salaried. But what we were seeing on our platform was people who had tried the self-employed thing and realized that it does not bring regular income. But I'm sure they'd prefer it to a salaried kind of situation if it did bring regular income. I also think the concept of growth is just really important. People want regular income, but they also want income that has the potential to grow. And I think this has actually been one of the big challenges around like job tech and a lot of platforms 
that we look at in the future of work where traditionally jobs had you like entering at a junior level and then getting promoted and moving up and you know if you get onto an uber platform your day one is pretty much the same as your day 1000 and i think that regularity is good but i think people do actually strive for like growth both economically and as part of their like identity and, and life satisfaction mm, i have a question for you guys so i agree totally I guess to focus our conversation, where do we think the bigger need slash when we talk about the future of work and we talk about the opportunity, when we talk about the like uh, doomsday, you know, millions of youth on the streets rioting, which one of those are we talking about? Are we talking about growth? Like where in the stack or in the spectrum do we see the like, what is this conversation really about in that spectrum? And I know it's everything, but I'm interested in how we think about almost our priorities. Maslow's hierarchy of employment. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Is the reason why you asked that question because you're like, even if Uber drivers don't have growth, the countries in question would still do well to have everyone be Uber drivers as opposed to no one being Uber drivers. Yeah, that's the question, yeah. Yeah, I mean... We've talked around this idea about the development organizations and the measurement of what is a job and who gets to determine what success looks like. I don't know if Chris wants to say anything about that, but like we've talked a little bit, Chayo, before just about, and in the context of some high profile criticisms of content moderation, that a job is better than, or earnings are better than no earnings. But again, it's like, who gets to decide that? Yeah, and what I'm also trying to do in our convo so that we, we're not too, like, airy-fairy is, like, someone's got to decide, right? These are, like, decisions. <laughs> They're real decisions that someone somewhere, uh, many people maybe, have to make at different stages of whether it comes from a policy perspective, whether it's from a funding perspective, whether it's from an operator's perspective, whether it's from an employer at any scale's perspective, there has to be some direction, right? So these decisions aren't just philosophical. So I, I think kind of in this like Maslow's hierarchy of jobs or these kind of different dimensions of what people care about versus like size of income, regularity of income, personal fulfillment or meaningfulness, ability to do other things with your time. Like we're all driven by different things in terms of career and I think when we try to like look at these policies in terms of investment policies or government policies or education policies, we try to assume that there's like one right or truth. But if we actually look at ourselves, we're all driven by like different elements of that job experience. And one thing that like we're doing right now in the Job Tech Alliance is there's this the sale work ratings, which are this really like fantastic way of looking at what is fair or not in a platform. And we're doing this little pilot right now with the International Labour Organization Systems Change Initiative to pilot a quality of work assessment tool that looks at the user level to understand how users perceive dignity, satisfaction. And a thing I'm really interested to find out from that is the diversity that we're likely to see where you can look at 100 people's engagement with the same platform. And some people might be loving the flexibility 
Some people might be hating the income, but seeing how they derive different levels of satisfaction from the same objective standards. But can I ask you a question about that exercise? Because I, I get the idea of comparing a platform to another platform or a platform to a formal job. But what about comparing like a platform to hawking on the street, right? Because that, isn't that actually what we're talking about here in the context of like who gets to decide? How do you guys think about that? You know me, I'm a big cold, bros. And it's really funny because I was doing a speech this weekend. We have a thing called the Artisan Academy. So we do some training for our artisans on soft skills, budgeting, finance. And the message that I was giving, which is, um, it can be a bit controversial sometimes, was that I respect you enough to treat you and build for you like an adult who knows their choice sets and their option sets and will choose the one that is best for them. And this is the platform that we want to build is like a platform for adults. I think sometimes, especially kind of in the development world, it can be very patronizing around what you think somebody wants, what you think somebody needs, et cetera, et cetera. And I build stuff for adults. I respect the people I build for. I expect that they'll make choices and they'll vote with their feet and their wallets and that's all I'm able to do. I understand there's, um, and there must be some, I guess, what I would call like raising of the safety net, probably. And in a good kind of ecosystem, you have people doing everything. But I, I wonder sometimes if there's too much safety netting when people don't even have anywhere to go. We're building a safety net when people are actually below the, do, do you know, like, like the, oh. what, are you ca- what, what are we catching you're building a safety net above the people. Like, yeah, like what, what are we catching? And I think that thing is a fear of mine, actually, when, when I think about what the future of work needs to be on this continent. Because let's be real, guys, it's not going to be pretty. It can't be pretty. It cannot be pretty. There's no way this thing can be pretty. We have a long way to go. Do you actually think that that's just like the arc of development is like that Europe went through the industrial revolution and that wasn't pretty, but there was no Twitter at the time? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that that's probably some some part of it, yeah. And I, I don't mean for this to be like where we just bash the development community, especially because... Yeah, I'm, I'm not bashing anybody, or Justin. I'm just saying my own personal choices. And then I'm asking the question of this can't be... Like, I think it's important for us to agree that this can't be pretty. And it's the right question to ask because at the moment there is in kind of policy media and like how decisions get made the kind of narrative is between is comparing to the full-time jobs with benefits that never existed but if we are able to have a more more nuanced narrative that understands that ultimately what we're looking at with a lot of these platforms is comparing to the status quo of informality and people selling tomatoes by the side of the road we need to understand how to make that job of selling tomatoes by the side of the road better, as opposed to comparing someone selling tomatoes for a digital platform against working for Microsoft. There's a question that I have, and Shia, we've talked about this in the past in the context of like training, this idea about enablement. I think about this question of enablement like a top-down thing would be creating jobs versus a bottom-up thing of like, we are enabling the person who's selling on the side of the road to grow their business. 
And we've talked about the prescriptive top-down sort of like, these are the things that you need to learn from an education perspective in order to survive in the four IR, blah, 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 versus what if you just give everybody a cell phone and a crypto wallet and a YouTube account and let them go, <laughs> you know, like that as enablement. But if we agree with the premise as we're talking about today that the nature of work has already changed and the narrative is changing around it and, and needs to change. To what extent does that then inform the strategy and to what extent does it shift it from prescription to enablement? And what does enablement even look like then in that context? I mean, what's interesting is like, it kind of mirrors a bit of evolution of our understanding of job tech, where we used to think of a lot of job tech as like gig matching, where you're connecting a service provider to a service buyer and, and connecting someone to like a unit of labor. And what we've seen a lot of job tech platforms evolve from is from gig matching to becoming something like an e-commerce engine of micro enterprise or an e-commerce engine of the entrepreneur. And, you know, Kandua did this with originally being a gig matching platform and moving into Hustle OS, as I consistently quote Shio talking about. I think the move from thinking about enablement is something that we've seen a lot of happening in practice. I mean, I could go a step further of trying to look into the future. And I'm interested in how platforms that are providing like infrastructure or enablement for entrepreneurs actually start blending the concept of entrepreneurship with the concept of employment again. If we think about a platform like Wasoko or MarketForce that is providing infrastructure for retailers to buy and sell goods, we see this as enabling self-employment. But as we're seeing more and more like commoditization of the work that those individuals are doing, it starts looking, if you ask me, a lot more like wage employment. Traditionally, in microenterprise, you had someone who would buy their inputs from a, a supplier. They would choose their prices and they bore a lot of risk in this. And these platforms reduce risk, reduce barriers to entry. They sometimes enable you to increase your margins or give you additional services. But it means that now everyone is like buying at the same price and selling at the same price. It kind of reduces the upside. It reduces the independence. And I think you start seeing a lot of these infrastructure platforms starting to kind of blend the concept of self-employment versus wage labor, right? And I think the interesting thing from like a top-down training versus enablement thing is that like that blurs. Even I was talking about our training on the weekend, like no doubt we're like leaning it towards shit that we know will be really good for our platform and for them eventually. But there is a top-down element of the enablement is you're enabling people in a very specific direction, which is kind of top-down. It's quite interesting to think about it that way as well. Yeah. Chris, you brought up Hustle OS before and it just it created like a thought in my head, which is, well, there's the stages. And we talked about this with the episode on standardization with M Pharma before about what the evolution 
of standardization or formalization looks like, right? And the lines start to get blurred in, in that way. But at the sort of like beginning of that evolution, to what extent do we just need many more like vertical specific hustle OS types of companies? Maybe there's a question there about the depth of a market to absorb, you know, a can do for every single vertical in every single market. But well, Shia, do you want to explain what hustle OS is? And then we can talk about, should we expect to see one in every single vertical? Yeah, I mean, to me, there's like an app store is actually the nicest way to put it because everyone kind of understands that. But I imagine that I am a photographer. I have started my business today and the app store shows me the things that I'm going to need. I need to register a business. I need to buy my film. I need to rent my stand and I need to find some customers. And then I found a couple of customers and now I've made a little bit of money. I probably need a bank account. Now I've made 10 customers and I probably need an assistant that's going to help me. Da, 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 da. So there's a platform for me to be able to find people that are looking for those jobs. So it's this idea of like a pathway from start to maybe established and being fed the right products and services that you need at that stage of your journey that help you and put you in the best position. Again, you're an adult. What you do with that position is important. And I think that's where this enablement and entrepreneurship employment question comes. It's like the structures can only get you so far, right? I don't think they, we talk about this concept of guiding you into the pits of success. Employment is like, we're trying to guide you to the pits of success. And if you're going off guard, we yank you back. I think entrepreneurship is like, if you're going off track, you're going off track. And so, yeah, the hustle OS and the way I kind of see it is that idea of pathways that serve you the right products and services, obviously tech enabled in your journey to building a business in whatever vertical that you're building it in. And to be honest, that's quite why I like that episode on conversion franchising, where we talk about the spectrum is like the franchise business is actually a hustle OS. It's like, here are all the bits and pieces you need to start your Subway or your Nando's and we'll provide you with chicken. You just go out there, pay for the store pay for your stuff. Here's the manual to train your stuff. Here's the manual for how you serve your chicken. Da, 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 da. So that's guiding you. But again, if you're a shit restaurant owner, you're going to be a shit restaurant owner. But if the chances were that you would be a good one, you're kind of removing all the things as much as possible that would get in your way. You guys get the idea. Yeah. But Chris, you've talked about in the past about this belief that micro franchising was like a silver bullet but it appeared to not be. And I, I don't know, maybe the only difference between what we're saying with the Hustle OS and micro-franchising is like the relationship between the platform and the worker, the relationship between like the franchisor and the franchisee. But is it the same thing? And you had said that it's not actually a silver bullet that people once believed that it was. Well, I, I think one of the problems with the development center is that things go in and out of vogue pretty quickly. So it didn't fall out of love for necessarily being proven wrong so much as just like something else came up. But it's definitely true that for a while, micro-franchising was seen as a bit of a silver bullet for reducing barriers to access, reducing failure rates. One thing that probably happened in this process of micro-franchising is exactly what we've described. Like there's a bit of a blending between self-employment and employment. And with this reduced barrier to access, with this reduced investment or setup cost, I think it also reduces the upside. And probably some of that 
micro franchising stuff ended up leading to not particularly great work because anyone could end up doing it. And, you know, that entrepreneurship that Shia is talking about where if you're a shit entrepreneur, you'll fail. The idea is that if you're a great entrepreneur, you'll succeed and there's huge upside. And what a lot of the micro franchising did as well as what potentially a lot of these platforms do is they drastically reduce the risk and downside, but they also reduce the upside. Hmm. So we're in agreement though that the future of work is going to be a portfolio of work. Yeah. <laughs> There's platforms and like platforms of all different sorts. Just think of all of the functions of a labor market. And when we think about training, we're not training someone for one job or existence in this portfolio, but they need to learn the transferable skills to use across the existing suite of their portfolio. But critically, as that portfolio evolves, as you know, the next type of digital work emerges, people need to be able to evolve from that old school thing of data tagging into this new school thing of whatever comes next. Sentiment analysis. One like thing that's interesting, this is just like a way that I've been making sense of this emerging portfolio is, do any of you guys like farm or know much about agriculture? Not much but it will come. <laughs> so basically like in a small holder agriculture, you, you generally think about like intercropping. You have one type of plant and another type of plant which feed each other and they complement each other in the soil. And we think about like portfolios of work a little bit like that. What in a portfolio is this nice complementariness where you can have your passive income based on the appreciation of your Bitcoin versus the work that you do that is very lumpy that you might not have any work for two weeks but then get a contract versus the little gigs that kind of keep piecing you together and yeah i think it's really interesting to think about what is a resilient portfolio of work and particularly in the context of the platform economy of how can you tie quite different types of work together to offer like resilient livelihood yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. Like I was talking to a service provider yesterday. I was just doing some user feedback stuff. And I'm like, yo, what's happening? You didn't pay for this thing that you said you'd pay for. And he was like, bro, no money. I said, but you were invoicing like these big amounts and then you just stopped. I said, yeah, nothing, no jobs came in. Can't do it, it's too expensive. I don't know if I'm going to convert. Then I started looking at his profile, giving him advice. I'm like, yo, my guy, you're a handyman, a tiler, a pool specialist, and a solar specialist. If I'm seeing your profile, I'm not going to give you my handyman job. I'm like, this guy's all over the place. But he's just like, well, I can kind of do enough of stuff and I know how to find the right people to be able to do a job. I'm like, well, just in terms of this platform, focus on one because that's how you're going to build up your portfolio to be able to win customers on our platform. And he said, ah, I'm not sure. I think I'm going to maybe, I'll come back later, like back to this job later. And I said, so what are you going to do instead? He said, I've been doing a property course and I'm now going to be looking at doing real estate. Like I'm going to be a real estate agent. I have my car, I can get around and I'm going to sh show people uh, houses. I'm like, well, okay, fair enough. And he said, yeah, well, but, but I'll be back. And you know, that kind of mentality of just like getting in where you fit in, finding the flows. Maybe his friend is doing well, doing this property thing. He's like, oh, well, that's an opportunity there. Let me follow that for a bit. Okay, cool. When pool specialist comes back in summer, when people want to get their pools ready and he's seeing an influx, he'll come back to pools. That's the nature of a lot of, um, a lot of work in our environment.
So, by the way, guys, we talked about platform stuff a lot, eh? We forgot a lot of other things. I still want to explore very deeply the export services. I think that's a very interesting one to me. It feels like that's an opportunity for us to be at least taking advantage of. So I like that space a lot. When we come back, we'll get into export services, market sizing, and even more abstract ideas like universal basic income. But first, here's another word from our sponsor, MFS Africa. A recurring theme we spoke about at The Flip is the challenges of expansion and scale in the context of the continent's market fragmentation. It's a challenge for startups and enterprises alike. And that scale question is something I asked of Cynthia Panera of MFS Africa's Enterprise Business Solutions team, who we heard from earlier in the show. Ultimately, we're connected over 34 countries with just one API. We basically connect our partner to all these multiple countries. So a fintech in Tanzania may be doing collections for e-commerce, wanting to scale out of Tanzania. So those are like the perfect examples that we get because they don't necessarily have to go to Kenya to get a different license. So it's just one API that's scalable and gives them more access to broader markets. I think being in my position like exposes me to so many different markets and to so many different customer needs. So one of the things that I have an appreciation of is how different markets operate. And it's not one size fits all. So in some cases, we are able to also like be the go-to where we can actually also advise the partner in terms of how to get it done in such a way that they're able to appreciate the payments um, engine that we provide. I would say it is more about what is the need for the partner and how can we as MFS Africa help partner to scale up in the multiple countries. I think the thesis that we had earlier in the season was that digital services for export were particularly important to focus on because A, they were low-hanging fruit. B, there was like seemingly abundant opportunity. It wasn't constrained to the local market. And C, the second-order effects of export in terms of earning dollars and foreign exchange and all of that kind of stuff. So, Shio, is there anything in particular that you wanted to talk about in that digital work context? I think the question is like how much of an opportunity it is. I'm always interested in other countries used it as an opportunity and how long that process takes. And one question we've had is around like, what is the training and what are the enabling conditions, right? To be able to offer such kind of work to the world and to ourselves. What education needs to be in place? What infrastructure needs to be in place? Is mobile phones enough or is it like fucking fiber? I guess that might be the big question. It's like, what are the enabling conditions that maybe that already exist and then need to exist for a thriving export digital work sector? I mean, I'm naturally particularly interested in the role of platforms and intermediaries, but I think it's really interesting and important in this digital workspace as well, because it's possible to look at the digital workspace as kind of like one thing but there's a huge amount of diversity in it there's like the freelancing space where everyone is their own individual and then you have the more like traditional bpo or business process outsourcing space where like historically in india you might have like a call center with a thousand people what is interesting when you think about africa emerging in this space is like where it sits maybe best on that spectrum because when we often think that there does need to be quite a lot of upskilling in this place. 
it means that maybe like the pure freelancing model isn't going to work at scale for the continent. But the traditional BPO model of like being core centers is probably going to be hard to compete against some of those other markets that have way more established BPO infrastructure. And like at the Job Tech Alliance, like we hypothesize that there's going to be quite a lot in Africa in, in the middle where you have niche managed service platforms that do that full service of screening, training, quality control on a specific niche that could be code testing or could be customer success or could be sales or leads generation. But that we're going to see a lot of smaller BPOs or smaller platforms that will really have to do that full service in order to be able to ensure that quality is delivered at the standards of the service buyer. So I have a just a question for you. In the context of the range of the platform enabled opportunities that the Job Tech Alliance thinks about, now we're talking about platforms in the context of global consumption. And I'm wondering if you guys put an opportunity or a number to like, this is how many jobs or this is how many earning opportunities exist for this category versus the other. And therefore we should focus more energy or resources on, in this context, digital work versus local platforms. So I think that's also what interests Shio is the perception that the opportunity is much wider here. And therefore we should focus on this opportunity much more than the other stuff. I mean, one thing about market sizing, though, is like ultimately when you do market sizing as a whole, you look like the whole of global work that could be done digitally, right? That is like your total addressable market. The question is, which of these can be best delivered from this continent? And one of the big issues about that space is like there's which of these could be best delivered from this continent now versus if we're able to like build a sector and create a market, how much could that space be? When call centers were first set up in India, I'm not sure if people realized the scale of the opportunity at the time and the addressable market that they were fulfilling at the time was probably relatively small. But as soon as our infrastructure was in place, there was the big opportunity to grow. Do you think? I think so. Mm. Did they realize the scale of the opportunity when they first set up? I think you have to have a point of view. When I say it as well, I don't think that you have to be right. But there was surely some sort of, a, especially because it was such a top-down effort as well, surely there was some point of view that, hey, this is going to be a big space. There had to be some sense of that demand. But don't you think that the question today is actually a little bit different? Because I don't think anyone is questioning the size and the scale of global business services today and also growing in the context of micro work let's say is 10 or 15 years old or whatever and there's going to continue to be new types of managed service and digital work that's coming i think everyone believes that to be true the question is only how much of the opportunity can african markets capture and what does that roi look like in terms of investing in the development of these sectors but that's two things right one of that is how much right one of it is what is the size of the pie and then the second is, what are we uniquely or better placed to take of that pie? That's what answers that question. So let me also put it this way, right? There's a difference between, let's say, data science 
being able to clean up data, like it's not necessarily like extremely hard, but there's a real super base level of skill that you need to be able to do to look at the data set and be able to clean it. But that's very different from being able to tag pictures. The thing I'm trying to like understand or talk about is like, is the data tagging thing the thing? Or is the thing, you know, we talk about this in our own, in vocational kind of sector a lot as well, which is like, yeah, it's going to take me five years to become a proper plumber, but can I do an installation of a geezer? Probably. And like the size of the market for geezers is huge. So like why waste time building all these master plumbers when you could have people fixing and installing geezers tomorrow? That's the kind of thing I'm trying to get into, if you know what I mean. One of the kind of critical issues about this whole space is, you know, when you say, is data tagging the thing? Those within the data tagging would say that, like, data tagging isn't a thing. There are a million things within that thing. And critically, those things have evolved hugely over the course of the last five to 10 years. Five to 10 years ago, it was people were still being paid to say which of these things was a zebra crossing or a fire hydrant. And nowadays, people being paid to do data tagging are answering questions about how the person was feeling when they were tweeting, right? These are quite different kind of skills that are needed. And like, I think there's pretty significant implications of this. We know that digital work as a space and a sector is going to be big. To market size, what there is in the future based on what there is now is pretty hard. When the data tagging sector emerged, for example, they certainly had no idea how big the sector was going to come. But why did they do it? My point is just like, there's a need for a point of view. That's the thing that like, we're all guys who have started and run businesses, right? We can be wrong, but we have a point of view on, on where we think things are going. And it's actually quite specific. The thing that I'm, I've been begging Justin, but um, we, I just feel like we have not nailed in this season is more points of view. And it's like, it's very open-ended. It's non-committal. And I don't know if I'd say it's the problem, but certainly as a audience, a listener uh, that's engaged, I'm like yearning for points of view that are quite specific because I think then we can have a lot more rich conversations. I feel like we haven't got to the hard questions part of it, the trade-offs part of it, which is my favorite part. I mean, but if we think about the ultimate issue of where we are right this is the whole season around the future of work and the way the future of work is defined by this season is by seven different episodes of completely different things mm. and i think that is a pretty good demonstration of the fact that like the future of work isn't something that we totally know about if we look at across this season what are the themes that bear out the themes that bear out largely suggest that the future of work is going to be based on portfolios of work or mixed livelihoods. The themes in probably build on the fact that platforms continue to grow in significance for people working in wage labor as well as self-employment. And the themes, you know, other themes that likely continue are that like, there are going to continue being emerging ways that people earn money 
that are very different from the ways that people have earned money in the last five to 10 years. And like, those are some themes that you can say are a, opinions or like potential truths of the future of work. Mm. But the significant bit is that future of work is like diverse and there's seven different episodes of seven different types of work. Yeah, for sure. I get that. And I think I'm just being difficult, but I think that's the, <laughs> yeah, I, I do think it's, it's the vibe, I suppose for us as ecosystem people, I think we must be like kind of difficult with each other. I think one other theme that came up a lot was this idea of coordination, right? It is this idea of the, like, there's so many actors, there's so many directions and that makes coordination really difficult. And I think the way that you solve a lot of coordination problems is by being really difficult, right? People are not going to be happy. No one's point of view is going to be the right one. There's a lot of compromise. It's a lot of uh, saying, okay, cool. Maybe a job is not a job, Mr. Development person. And we're going to stand fast on the fact that a job that you've defined is not a job for people that are on ground. And how do you make that kind of stand when no one will agree on any? Do you know what I mean? Like there's hard questions to answer that require yeah. really strong points of view that I feel like we shy away from as an ecosystem a little bit. Yeah, I think... The coordination problem thing is a question of, well, how do you solve these problems? And even, Chris, back to what you were saying about the definition of unemployment in Liberia, people can't even agree upon the rules and the definitions before we even talk about addressing the problems. Are people starting to at least agree on that? Or is that going to always be sort of a barrier to actually solving these problems at scale? I think there's an inevitability in kind of where things are going. But can I ask you guys a question? Should there have been an episode called The Future of Work is Universal Basic Income? Oh, that would have been such a good one. Yeah, that would have been a good one. Like if we're saying that there's like fundamentally not going to be enough jobs and, you know, you know, with the emergence of ChatGPT, the few that there were seem to be ever increasing. And mm -hmm. as the population is projected to grow so much, do we need to start talking about alternative income models when we are supposed to be talking about jobs mm. you know i think there's been like a historic split of the social protection over there and jobs over here but like this is very do we start question. need to thinking about these two as blending into one mm. yeah man that one is uh above my pay grade bro i like that's too <laughs> ah, I, I swear bro, what, like, what do you think I don't know, man. It's just, it's like, honestly, that's why my brain is short-circuiting. Like, universal basic income as a, like, a concept is, my brain hasn't reached there yet. Like, I'm, I'm too, like, uh, on road, you know what I mean? Like, it feels like sci-fi. It's such an interesting question to me, the degree to which the responsible thing to do might actually be to acknowledge that not enough jobs are ever going to be created or not enough income-generating opportunities are ever going to be created. Not that anyone would ever admit that, yeah, is whether we admit it to self, whether we just need to be having the conversation. I think you need to be having the conversation. Yeah, and those are the kind of things that I'm, I like, by the way. Even though my brain short circuits, I do like it when we get to that kind of point where it's like, ah, maybe our lives don't mean anything. Our lives work. This is just a waste of time. No, I feel like those are important questions. <laughs> That's how you get to the, the juice. That's it for this episode and indeed this season of The Flip. If you enjoyed this episode and the season, we would appreciate if you shared with a friend or a colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. 
And for more from The Flip, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Flip Africa for more short-form content and insights from our contributors. Until then, thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you soon.